Hi, I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is Call Number with American Libraries. Hello listeners, and welcome to Call Number with American Libraries. Yes, that's right, we have a new name, and for good reason. The Dewey Decibel name has associations with harassment, particularly involving Melville Dewey, an ALA founder and the inventor of the Dewey Decimal Classification System that we here at the podcast and the magazine do not want to celebrate. So we're restarting with a new name, but with the same great interviews and programming that you've come to expect from us here at American Libraries. And with that, on with the show. It's October, so that can only mean one thing, Halloween. It's our favorite time of the year here at the podcast because we get to indulge our love of all things spooky and scary, particularly in the realm of literature and libraries. Today on Call Number, I speak with Matt Ruff, author of Lovecraft Country, the best-selling horror novel that's been adapted into a hit series on HBO. Next, American Library's staffers and more reveal what frightens them the most, everything from existential concerns to those very fitting for the Halloween season. Finally, American Library's managing editor Tara Dankowski talks with Elizabeth Campbell Denglinger, curator of the Carl H. Forsheimer collection of Shelley in a Circle at New York Public Library, about the collection's materials on Mary Shelley, author of the 1818 classic Frankenstein, or a modern Prometheus. But first, a word from Geico, this episode's sponsor. It's October, and what does that mean? Well, it's Geico Ween, of course. Don't be spooked by high rates on car insurance. Geico is brewing up spellbinding savings that they're crafting just for you. See how much you could save. As a member of the American Library Association, go to geico.com D-I-S-C A-L-A, call 1-800-368-2734, or contact your local Geico agent for a fast, no-obligation quote. You can save even more with a special discount when you mention you're a member of the ALA. Happy Geico-ween, everyone. Lovecraft Country is one of the hottest new shows on TV right now. The program follows a young black man and his family and friends in the segregated U.S. in the 1950s and the troubles they encounter, many of which are linked to horrors created by the notoriously racist writer H.P. Lovecraft. It's based on the best-selling novel by author Matt Ruff, and while the story itself is filled with unimaginable supernatural terrors, the real horror comes from actions perpetrated upon people of color living under Jim Crow in the U.S. I spoke with Ruff about the book, its inspiration, and how genre fiction can be used to comment upon social justice issues. Your book, Lovecraft Country, it's um, everywhere right now, and um, for the past few years, I should say that. Um, but what, uh, what was the inspiration for the book? So the, uh, this actually started out as an unsuccessful TV series pitch. Um, it was back in 2007, and I'd been invited by a couple of TV producers who were fans of my, my work to pitch original ideas for TV shows. And one of the things I wanted to do was a sort of a take on the X-Files, but instead of being about white FBI agents in the 1990s, it was going to be about a black family in Chicago in the 1950s who owned a travel agency and published a fictional version of the green book called the safe Negro travel guide that sort of listed hotels and restaurants and other accommodations across the country that would accept black travelers. And 
it was sort of going to combine, you know, sort of weekly paranormal adventures with uh, the more mundane uh, terrors of life in the Jim Crow era. And uh, this is where sort of H.P. Lovecraft came into it because I needed a thematic bridge between paranormal horror and uh, the more mundane terrors of racism. And Lovecraft sort of stands for both of those. He's obviously this very influential and talented uh, cosmic horror writer, but at the same time, he was an avid white supremacist. And so it was going to be, that was basically the, the concept. And I couldn't, you know, the, the people I was talking to just didn't go for this uh, or for any of my other ideas, but the story stayed with me and I really wanted to see if I could do something with it. So I eventually figured out a way to make it work as a novel. And, uh, you know, with the idea in the back of my head that if the book was good enough, that maybe it could serve as a proof of concept that really this could work as a TV show. And uh, that ended up succeeding beyond my wildest dreams when the book came out just as Jordan Peele was finishing up Get Out and he was looking around for his next project. And so that was that was sort of how the HBO series happened. I uh, I got a phone call from my agent and said that, you know, this is a little unusual, but because this guy is mostly known for comedy, but apparently he's looking to break into horror. And so Jordan Peele would really like to talk to you. And I said, sure. And uh, one thing led to another. And that's basically how the HBO series happened. Um, now, speaking of, of the horror, um, your book, it, it really masterfully melds the sci-fi and horror elements with the racism experienced by black people and, and, and people of color in the U.S. in the 50s. Um, what is it about genre fiction that lends itself to explorations of racism, sexism, and other social justice issues? I mean, I think you can, you know, I, I think part of that is just that that's a thing that a lot of people want to write about anyway now. I, I didn't I didn't necessarily feel that I needed the, the science fiction or fantasy to, to blend with that. I just thought it would be interesting and that it was, I've always loved blending genres and, and you know, blending different things. And I love the idea of taking real world issues and then combining them with these more fantastic elements, because I just think it, it leads to a, a richer and more interesting reading experience on its own merits. And part of what I was trying to do with Lovecraft Country 2 and, and you know, talking about the, the experience that black folks went through in the 1950s, one of the things that there, you know, there were, there've always been black nerds, black science fiction and, and fantasy and horror fans. And, you know, that just like everything else, it was, it was difficult for them in the fifties because they, they loved these genres of fiction that didn't love them back and didn't really have room for them. And that was sort of another function of Lovecraft in this novel too. He's sort of the, the perfect icon for the difficulty that uh, black fandom has always had is, you know, there's stuff in his, his, his stories are very appealing. Uh, if you love horror, except that he goes out of his way to let you know that he just doesn't consider, you know, black folks to be fully human. And so what do you do? You know, you, you want to love this stuff. You want to, you want to take part in it, but it just keeps pushing back against you. So to me, that was one of the things that it was just, there's this history, the, the history of racism ties just as much into genre as into, you know, every other part of American society. So that was just sort of a natural entry point to bring that all together anyway. And then it gave me an opportunity to sort of retake these classic horror and fantasy and sci-fi tropes and try to reimagine them. What if you, what if you did have black protagonists, how would that change the, you know, how would that change the story? And, you know, and that, a case of, you know, be careful what you wish for. It's like you, you've always wished you could be a, a hero in one of these stories, but then you find out what it's like. Yes. You move into a house that turns out to be haunted or, you know, find yourself being stalked by a, a devil doll or, or something like that. And so it's, it was just a, it was just a great way to take these classic old tropes and reimagine them and do something new with them. 
Um, you know, one thing that really uh, impressed me about the book, um, I guess structurally, and uh, is the detail. The detail in the book for everything from, as you mentioned, the uh, we have the uh, the travel guides and the experiences of, of African American and Black travelers in the '50s and life under Jim Crow. Um, in addition to Lovecraft, I mean, you, you name check and reference Bray Bradbury, Wells, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, and just as as a Chicagoan, you know, the details about our city from far south side. Uh, Hyde Park up to Ravenswood in the north. Um, all these, it's, 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 it's such a rich, a rich work. And I think some of our listeners, um, being library folk, would probably be really interested in what was your research process like for this? I mean, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, researching the history of the, you know, yes, the, the history of Chicago, the, the rules that, um, you know, basically what life was like in segregated America. And, in particular, what it was like in the North, because this is a thing that you know people don't understand. That we, we, even now, we tend to think of racism as primarily a Southern phenomenon, and in fact, it was just as big of an issue in the North. It was just expressed a bit differently. There were, you know, there were fewer signs warning you where you could and couldn't go. So that actually added an extra level of paranoia, because at least when you were traveling in the South, you, you could you, you had signs specifically telling you where you were and weren't welcome. Whereas in the North, it was more of a guessing game and. Mm-hmm. People would often lie to you, even as they were discriminating. So, um, so I spent a lot of time just basically learning about what the rules of this this world that my characters are going to be living in was. And uh, I have the good fortune to be married to a professional researcher. My wife um, worked for many years as a, a rare book dealer and a rare book expert, and so she's she's very knowledgeable about how to go into a library and and come back with all kinds of cool information. So. Um, I was able, you know, I would just ask her, you know, I, I want to write about somebody buying a, a, a black person being the first black person to buy a house in a white neighborhood. You know, can you get me information on what that experience would be like? And she'd go to the library and come back with a ton of books with, you know, a memoir of somebody who's done that and, and, you know, other books that covered that. And so Lisa did a lot of my researching for me. Um, I and also through the University of Washington uh, library system, I was able to access the uh, Chicago Defender archives. And I spent, like, I read the entirety of 1954 back issues just to familiarize myself with what um, the the cultural and the news issues in the black community would have been at that time, just looking for, you know, little anecdotes I could tie into the story. And, you know, of course, I had access to maps. And uh, that's another thing, the Chicago neighborhoods. My wife brought back, like, probably half a dozen different books describing the different Chicago neighborhoods and their histories and, and, you know, what to look for. Some from that time period, some more contemporary. So, um, yeah, so just a lot of stuff like that. And I basically, the combination of a really good library system and a, and a really smart researcher who I, I works for me for free, which is nice. <laughs> now, in addition to, to some of the research that you had to do, um, as a white man, as a white writer, um, what were some of the challenges of writing about the experiences of black characters in the book, especially when it came to terms with how they experienced racism? What were the challenges or were, were there any challenges for you writing about that? Uh, I mean, for me, I have to say, it, to me, it was just a natural extension of what I have always done in my fiction. I mean, I, I, I would be very bored if all I were going to do was write about characters who are exactly like me. And in mm-hmm. general, my, my, for me, fiction, part of what I love about it is it lets me myself into the the minds and the worldviews of people who are different from me who may you know share interests and temperaments but come from very different backgrounds and very different experiences so 
I mean, I think the main challenge, I was aware, obviously, that this is a particularly fraught topic, particularly right now, you know, a white author writing about the, the quote-unquote black experience. I knew if I did a bad job, um, I, I was likely to come in for extra scrutiny because of because I am a, a white man writing about this. And so I knew if I did a bad job, I would probably hear about it. And But that was not that was never a reason not to do the story. That was just a reason to make sure I, I did a good job, didn't get lazy, did my research, and, and you know, and it, it obviously was very helpful in, in my case that I just, I really enjoyed the writing experience. I, I loved, you know, sitting down every day with these characters and I wanted to do right by them. So I was very motivated to make sure I, I did a good job. Um, and, you know, it, it, again, the the experience of racism, it's, it's not like I've never been in the room when racism is happening. I just, I'm, I'm not the target of it, but it's not like it's a completely alien experience to me. So, um, just the desire to do well, and I've I've had a lot of practice writing that characters are different from me, I, and and just that general sense of empathy I think is all you really need, and uh, yeah, so that was that was how how it went with me. Um, now you you just you kind of alluded to this in your in your last answer, um, but the book though it's set in the 1950s, it's very prescient for for where we are right now. Um, what do you hope readers can learn about the present through Lovecraft Country? I mean, the, the main thing, I mean, I, I, I get this a lot, but I have to say, one of the things that, that has been striking is just, I, I think the book would have seemed prescient at any time in the past, you know, I, going back to the, the time in which it's set, because these problems never really go away. That mm-hmm. It's just the news media will, will periodically, something unusually horrific will happen, like the George Floyd murder, and it will become a topic of interest in the media for a while. Sometimes things improve a little bit, sometimes they don't. And then the, you know, there's some other shiny object that distracts, that distracts the news media. But these issues, they have a long history. And, and part of what I, I think, you know, the book may, may alert people to a little bit is just, you know, it give you some sense of, of how far back this stuff goes and what the roots of some of this are. I mean, you know, in, just in my research about, you know, reading about the, the history, I, I learned a lot of stuff about, you know, that just, just that these are, these are longstanding problems and the stuff did not just crystallize overnight. So, um, but it's, it's, unfortunately it's, it's, it's a hard problem to solve and it's going to be with us for a while yet, it seems like, but um, at least it, it, it helps to know where it came from and how long it's been here and how long people have been struggling about it, I think, to, to you know, give you a sense of, it, it didn't just magically happen, and it's not just individual incidents. It's a whole system and a whole history. Um, what do you think the book's namesake, um, H.P. Lovecraft, what do you think he would think of your book? So Lovecraft was interesting in that he, you know, if he liked you otherwise, he was he was actually um, weirdly, like he would treat liberal sentiment as sort of a charming quirk. Like one of his closest friends was a guy named John Ferdinand Morton, who was an anarchist and actually a member of the NAACP, um, who originally met Lovecraft when he criticized Lovecraft for some racist thing that Lovecraft had written. But he did it in a, a sort of respectful way where he attacked Lovecraft's ideas rather than Lovecraft personally and implied that, you know, that, that Lovecraft was you know, he was he was useful and inexperienced, and then as he learned more about the world, he would come to realize that his racist views were were foolish. And uh, unfortunately, that did not happen. Lovecraft did not grow out of it. But because because of that, I think what he and Lovecraft became friends, and they became part of the same writing circle. And so, 
I, I think the same thing. If he if he read Lovecraft Country, I think he would find the idea of the the black characters absurd. But if he liked the horror, I suppose he might take a a, a sort of you know teasing attitude. Oh oh, that Matt Ruff and his wacky ideas about you know uh, black people and women being fully human. But um, I, yeah, I don't know that he. That's assuming he got into it. He might he might just part of the problem is it's just hard to imagine Lovecraft in in our time mm-hmm. um, because he's. In some ways, I think I, I just don't know if his ignorance could withstand the the world of Twitter. But it would be interesting to see how he would fare in the in the present day, um, and if you know it would finally get through to him. But I I don't know I don't know, but I think he would just you know he just find me uh, a charmingly naive liberal I suppose. How do you banish high rates on car insurance? You switch to Geico during Geico Ween. October is their favorite time of year, and the folks over at GEICO have been working even harder to cast out high rates and craft just the right policy for you and your family. Switching to GEICO isn't so scary, especially when they could brew up spellbinding savings just for you. As a member of the American Library Association, go to geico.com D-I-S-C A-L-A, call 1-800-368-2734, or contact your local GEICO agent for a fast, no-obligation quote. You can save even more with a special discount when you mention you're a member of the American Library Association. Happy Geico-ween, everyone. What scares you? It's a question as old as time, humans pondering and questioning their fears. We asked the staff of American Libraries and one special grade schooler to share with us what scares them the most. And I guess I should probably start with myself. What scares me? Well, I have a crippling fear of heights, but since it's Halloween, I'm gonna start with something uh, more apropos. Zombies. I'm afraid of zombies. I have been since I first saw the video for Michael Jackson's Thriller when I was nine years old, way back in 1983. The, The weird thing is, I love zombies. The movies, the books, the pop culture embrace of them all. Night of the Living Dead is one of my favorite movies. I have an old poster for the film framed on my living room wall. So, so what is it? Well, they're dead. They're unstoppable. And most important, they're us. Every other popular monster has an element of the fantastical to it, but zombies are simply us. Rotting. Dead. And with one purpose. To eat the living. Creepy. I'm afraid of touching wet grass or anything that feels like grass, like parsley or cilantro in the supermarket if it's been misted, which it usually has been, because it feels like it is going to stick to my hands and never, ever come off. Space. I'm kind of scared of space. When I look up in the night sky at the stars and they're so far away and I'm so little, it's just kind of crushing and I feel like I can't breathe. My fear is fire. Matches, lighters, candles, campfires, just all of it. It took years before I was even comfortable using a gas stove in my own apartment, although I still don't use the broiler. So that's it. Fire bad. Happy Halloween. Please keep your jack-o'-lanterns away from me. What frightens me most is squashed pumpkins so it looks like monsters are walking by and um, ghosts hang really, really scary ghosts hanging on trees or, um, like, 
ghosts, like zombie ghost things, um, on your roof or something. I have a fear of brain-eating amoebas. It's not my biggest fear, but I love swimming outside, and they're a very, very small risk, but a risk that exists, where if you get water up your nose and there's a tiny amoeba in it, it will eat your brains and kill you. Um, you would think, I, growing up in the middle of nowhere as I did, swimming in a large, hot, dirty pond over the summers, which was awesome, that I would have gotten brain amoebas 20 or 30 years ago if I was going to get them, but nope, as an adult, if I go swimming outside and I get water up my nose, I'm convinced I'm going to die. I'm afraid of big crowds, probably because I got separated from my parents at a parade when I was a kid. You won't catch me at Mardi Gras. Okay, here's a short list of things that scare me. Number one, birds, because I can't look at them without thinking that they're miniature dinosaurs. Two, tin can lids. I always think that that's how I die. Like a tin can lid is going to slice my jugular and I'm going to bleed out on like a can of beans. Um, Three, that cottony material in pill containers. If you touch it, it's not like real cotton. It's like, it's definitely feels like it was once alive. That is really weird. Um, Four, choking on a hamburger. This is, this is going to sound strange and frankly unbelievable, but two of my relatives have died choking on a hamburger. I don't want to get into it, but it is a legitimate worry. I definitely chew through my food. Um, And number five, I have a fear that I am going to get hit by a car in a crosswalk while listening to one of my guilty pleasure songs. And someone's going to write my obituary on, you know, all about the song that, like, I was listening to while I got hit. So it's going to be like, uh, Gin Blossom's mega fan, Tara Dankowski, was struck in a crosswalk. You know, that, mm. And there you go. Now you must think I'm the most neurotic New Yorker ever. How do you banish high rates on car insurance? You switch to GEICO during GEICO Ween. As a member of the American Library Association, go to geico.com slash D-I-S-C slash A-L-A, call 1-800-368-2734, or contact your local GEICO agent for a fast, no-obligation quote. You can save even more with a special discount when you mention you're a member of the American Library Association. And don't forget, October is GEICO's favorite time of the year, and GEICO has been working even harder to cast out high rates on car insurance and craft just the right coverage for you and your family. But here's the thing you may not know about GEICO. They could also help you uncover more ways to save on the other things parked in your driveway, like your beloved motorcycle, boat, or even your home away from home, your RV. GEICO could even help you save on homeowners and renters insurance. So visit geico.com slash D-I-S-C slash ALA today and you'll see firsthand that switching your insurance coverage doesn't have to be scary. The only thing that will haunt your nightmares is seeing just how much you could have saved if you had switched sooner. GEICO. Happy geico everyone. Frankenstein is synonymous with Halloween and horror. But well before movie and pop culture stardom, the lumbering green-faced monster was an altogether different creature in the classic 1818 book Frankenstein, or Modern Prometheus, written by Mary Shelley. Elizabeth Campbell Denglinger knows a lot about Shelley and her monster. 
She's curator of the Carl H. Forsheimer collection of Shelley in a Circle at New York Public Library, an expansive collection of materials related to poet Percy Bysshe Shelley and his contemporaries, including his wife, Mary Shelley. Danglinger is also the author of It's Alive, A Visual History of Frankenstein. American Library's managing editor, Tara Dinkowski, spoke with her about Shelley and her famous work, the era in which it was created, highlights from the collection, and much more. You know, we wanted to reach out to you because we knew for this episode, we wanted to talk about Frankenstein. Um, it's perfect horror. It, it, you know, it sheds light on humankind, themes of birth and creation, ambition, alienation, revenge. Um, so how in your mind does, and, you know, just knowing what you know about um, the collection, how does that an 18-year-old named Mary Shelley come to write a novel with such themes? And, and what is it about her life that influences Frankenstein? Maybe the first thing to say is that she wasn't Mary Shelley when she started writing it. She was still Mary Godwin. Um, so she, I, I, I wrote this whole list of um, things that led her to this. Um, and the first one is, is just ambition, which I can't, which comes partly because she came from this family of writers. Um, her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, was a was a feminist theorist. Um, and a very successful one, and one of the earliest ones to get to to have sort of popular um, acclaim. Um, and her father, William Godwin, was a philosopher um, who thought very hard about how government should work and how it should, you know, the part it should play in people's lives, which was a much smaller part than he thought it was. Um, and then she fell in love with a married poet named Percy Bysshe Shelley. And um, after they had been together for a year, they took this trip to Switzerland, um, and partly, partly to, partly because Mary Shelley is Mary Godwin's, that is to say, um, stepsister Claire Claremont suggested it because she was pursuing George Gordon Byron, Lord Byron. Um, and he was going to Switzerland, so Claire said, let's go to Switzerland. Um, but the point is, you know, with Byron and Shelley and her parents, Mary Godwin was surrounded by writers, and Percy Bysshe Shelley really wanted her to live up to her inheritance, um, and she did too. Um, so she felt, you know, once they had this famous ghost story contest underway, she felt very much under the gun to come up with something. So that's the answer about impetus. Um, but the other things that come to come into play are, you know, she had already by that time had a child who died um, at a few weeks old, a daughter. Um, and she certainly grew up knowing that her mother had died 10 years after, 10 days, sorry, after giving birth to her. Um, and she was raised with her mother's portrait in the parlor. So, so you know, she had this very clear sense of death and knew it intimately already. Um, and also, you know, you see in Frankenstein, the novel, a real sense of wanting to figure out the world. So, so you see her reading coming into play. Um, the creature in the novel is, um, is literate and we see a lot about how he teaches himself to read and what he reads. So he reads, um, Paradise Lost, which is his favorite. He reads a book called um, The Ruins of Empire by, by a man named um, François Volney. So 
so like she wanted to know the world and she shows the creature figuring out his way in the world and she also shows him um thwarted you know victor frankenstein makes this creature runs away from it and is never reconciled to it you know you can see some difficulty of her childhood and she had this stepmother who you know she was not fond of and who they had really a hard time getting along you know you see the desperation of someone who has run away from respectability at a time when she's really not old enough to totally understand what she's doing so i think all of that stuff gets kind of crushed into the novel and then she has this one brilliant idea which is you know this creature made from body parts and i think that's what makes the story so endlessly versatile and it's very simple you know you take you take dead bodies and you magically make them into a, a being um and then what kind of being is that and you know she wrote later about having that idea in a dream um maybe she did maybe she did i mean you know why not just believe her you uh so you had touched upon that she's kind of from this this family and this legacy of writers and her mother was a feminist activist and her father um, it was quite political. Um, do you do you see a lot of political or feminist themes in Mary Shelley's work or other parts of the collection that um, reflect upon her or involve her? She was the kind of person, and she says so herself in her in her letters and, and her journals, um, who didn't go out for for public politicking. And people, I mean, people write a lot about the politics in her works, and it's it's, but it's just not her shtick. You know, Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin were both, that's the word I want, they were always ready to speak their minds. Um, and they were always ready to intervene in public um, political fights um, and sometimes did so with, with pretty strong results. And Mary Shelley was just a more private person. Um, part of that was Part of that probably stemmed from the fact that she did run away with P.B. Shelley when he was still married, and that she, you know, the public opprobrium from that continued, you know, well after she was widowed. So it wasn't until the 1830s that she sort of started to return to society or to make her way into society for the first time. Um, <clears throat> so you don't see politics as a central part of her books. But she did, in private, um, you know, befriend, like she made friends with this, um, probably, we can now say trans man, but someone who was born as Mary Diana Dodds, who became known as Walter Schulto Douglas, and who, um, you know, escaped to France with his wife um, and became a writer as, as Walter Schulto Douglas. So, so Mary Shelley was a friend of both of the couple, both, both partners of the uh, couple, um, and gave them financial support. She was also friends with this woman named Caroline Norton, who's, who was a battered wife and who fought for custody of her children um, and who, who's, the lawsuit that gave her partial custody was like one of the, one of the moments of, you know, beginning to reform the marriage laws in 19th century England. Um, just switching gears a little, um, you've published mm -hmm. a book on the visual history of Frankenstein called It's Alive. Um, what, what has happened to the creature's appearance over the years? And, and do you have a favorite, I guess, quote unquote, look for him? 
so the the creature's appearance, like the the crucial first thing that happened with the creature um, was that Frankenstein was made into a play in 1823. And that's really why it became famous. Like as a novel, it was it was selling okay. You know, it wasn't making them a ton of money. When it was put onto the stage, it became a hit. Um, and the guy who played the creature was... I think he was over six foot tall and he would go on stage painted blue and wearing a toga um, and barefoot and practically, and oh, sorry, he was wearing like a body suit under the toga. So maybe he had like some kind of covering on his feet, but not shoes. Um, and uh, the only part that was retained from the, from the description in the novel where the creature, um, the creature is absolutely a person of color. He's, He's yellow, uh, he's got long black hair, and he's eight foot tall. Um, so on stage, he's blue, he's, but he still has long black hair, um, and he's lost his voice, So, so the, like, which isn't part of his look, but it was absolutely part of the character, because he's now, instead of like talking his way um, through things with Victor, he dances and he kills people and he's just purely physical and that's the, what we think of as Frankenstein's monster now. Um, so I really, I do love that look. I also, I love the Boris Karloff um, makeup job that Jack Pierce did in 1931 and 35 where he's got these, these electrodes on the sides of his neck. You know, they're not, everyone thinks they're bolts, but they're not bolts. Like Jack Pierce thought of them as like how the creature would eat. Like he thought the creature eats electricity and this is how he plugs in. I think that's um, kind of the Frankenstein we all associate with, you know, Halloween decorations. Or... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, that's the one that became totally iconic. But the last one I want to mention, mention is just there's a comic book called uh, Destroyer by Victor Laval. It's a wonderful comic about a, a woman, an African-American doctor whose son is killed by the police because he's carrying a baseball bat because, you know, seven-year-old boys with baseball bats are dangerous if they're black. So she brings her son back to life. So, But there's also but that Frankenstein's original monster is still in the world. Anyway, it's about those two, like the very young creature and the much older creature. And anyway, that's a, he's a beautiful, he's a beautiful monster. Do you have any favorite items from the collection? P.B. Shelley's first wife. Harriet Westbrook Shelley um, uh, left a suicide letter, which we have, and which is, it's crushingly sad. It's just um, one of the saddest things I've ever read. And one of the, it's a, it's, I mean, she's deeply depressed. Um, so somehow it makes me very happy that we have that though. Um, and you can see it on NYPL's digital uh, collections. Like it's, it's right there. I'm also happy that we got a extremely rare copy of Percy Bysshe Shelley's first book of poetry called Victor and Kazir, um, which was suppressed almost as soon as it came out. So very few copies survived, and they're all copies that either passed through Shelley and his family or through the printer. Or the um, so, and this is one that has has Shelley's notes by both Shelley and his um, sister Elizabeth, who wrote it with him. 
And the last thing I want to mention is something that's not an object in the collection, but it's something I've worked on and I think is really great that it exists, um, called the Shelley Godwin Archive, which you can reach by going to ShelleyGodwinArchive.org. And um, it has the whole manuscript of Frankenstein in it. And it's it's transcribed. One of the things about Frankenstein that, that every so often gets, um, you know, it gets to be not controversial, but... Um, people say, oh my God, Shelley, P.B. Shelley worked on Frankenstein. How much did he write? Um, and you can see how much he wrote um, because you, it's, it's coded in a way so that you can toggle between his handwriting and her handwriting. So you can see that he's basically, basically editing. So anyway, that, it just makes me very happy that anyone can see the manuscript of Frankenstein at any point and, you know, read it for themselves. What do you personally think makes Frankenstein so enduring? I think I think we should think of two Frankensteins, and one is the novel. And in some ways, I think what makes the novel so enduring is the creature's um, intelligence and his claims on Victor's um, affection and his claims that Victor has mistreated him. Um, he's incredibly articulate. And the thrilling parts of the book are you know, first his creation, um, but second, this long conversation he has with, with Victor Frankenstein um, on the top of a mountain in the Alps um, in this little hut where um, he demands his rights. So that's Frankenstein, the novel. Frankenstein, the idea, I think absolutely it's the thought that, as I said before, you can, you know, you can take... Um, bits of corpses and somehow animate them. Um, you know, the movie makes it electricity in the early plays. It was alchemy. But just the sort of idea that you can bring the dead back to life and not just as the dead, but as some new creature, um, I think is endlessly fascinating. And it's so versatile that it gets remade. It's It's still being remade. Like there's really no limit to what you can do with it. Um, and even in Mary Shelley's time, you started seeing um, like the green grocer's Frankenstein where they were showing monsters made up of different vegetables or you know, it was early used as a racist stereotype. So there was like the Irish Frankenstein um, where the monster is this, you know, uncouth Irishman. I mean, it's, it's a racist stereotype, you know, very early on the creature had started to be remade and, and used as a metaphor um, for something that you create that gets out of your control. And that happened really early and it still continues. That wraps our Halloween episode. Thanks again to Matt Ruff, Elizabeth Campbell Danglinger and the staff of American libraries for helping us celebrate this year. Join us next month as Call Number looks at teen services, especially how they've been affected by the pandemic. Do you have something to say to us here at the podcast? Well, we want to hear from you. New to Call Number, you can reach out to us directly and tell us your thoughts and opinions about our shows and much more with your own voice. Call 312-857-6761 and leave us a message that will be featured in future episodes. That's 312-857-6761. We hope to hear from you all. As always, I'm Phil Moorhart, and this is Call Number with American Libraries. (laughs) 